Kia ora. you're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast, bringing you the best in local and family history from Aotearoa New Zealand, the Pacific and beyond. Your heritage now. No mai, haere mai. Earlier this year, professional genealogists Michelle Patient and Fiona Brooker joined us via Zoom to celebrate the first anniversary of their fortnightly virtual lounge gig, Talking Family History. Attended by people from around the globe, each session entails information about what's new in the ever-changing world of genealogy, group activities and Q&A. In this talk, Michelle and Fiona chat about what led them to start their online sessions. They discuss family history and DNA, share research strategies and provide valuable tips for overcoming brick walls. So kia ora and g'day. And hello from Christchurch um, as well. I noticed there's quite a few Aussies in the room, so I thought I'd better throw in the g'day so they can realise there's two accents in the room, yours and mine. So hi everybody. Um, I'm going to start with the slideshow and give you a bit of background to why we're here. But firstly, apologies because um, a huge number of changes came up and we weren't able to attend the conference that we were meant to be doing live in Auckland together. And also as a result, I'm now not allowed to drive for the next about three weeks. So I could, I was intending to drive up today just for the day to be with you all, but I'm not allowed to drive. So here we are, every, us on Zoom. Um, and thank you for coming into town, into the new venue. And I'm looking forward to seeing that when um, I come up there next. So I'm just starting kick this off for us. I think actually doing this on Zoom is actually pretty clever because this is really where Talking Family History came from. Absolutely and that's what happened. So um, so this is what Fiona and I have been doing and the reason we were going to be speaking in Auckland today is um, that actually we turned one this week and so we wanted to kind of have a bit of a party atmosphere and do Talking Family History live. So here's kind of Talking Family History virtually live maybe. Um, so the backstory is that when COVID hit, I was organising an international roadshow tour with Blaine Bedinger and Angie Bush and Johnny Pearl coming out. And I was halfway to Queenstown to pick them up when everything went pear-shaped. And so we had to pivot pretty quickly. And thank you to my colleague, Fiona, who we've worked together on and off over the years. Um, she was helping with the Christchurch League of the Tour we started talking about what are we going to do for all of us while well, we're just not able to do anything. And we'd already started working with Zoom. And so we decided to just like open the doors to everyone we knew and say, we're going to be here every Friday night to just talk about family history. And because I have a number of family members with mental health issues, that's really where I'm. And Fiona's just got a great heart. So I, I don't think we've ever really discussed your motivation before, Fee. No. But I that's where I was coming just the need to share and, and teach and help people with their family history. Yeah. Share their and, addiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we both agreed that we could talk. Yeah, that's pretty given. <laughs> so we called it Talking Family History and we started out by doing something every single Friday night and and we had a full Zoom room nearly every single Friday night. And, and we had people come from literally around the world who spoke English. So, you know, people from Canada, but they live down here, people in the US, people, and we had a couple of Scottish people drop in from time to time and some English and lots of Aussies and lots of Kiwis. 
And it just went from there. And they started saying, you need to do this, keep doing this afterwards. And so here we are. And we developed something that covers news. And mostly Fiona and I share whatever we found interesting in the last fortnight, because we both work professionally as genealogists. Um, varies in the amount of work we both do. I'm only part-time, fees full-time. But we always find there's something interesting to talk about, for sure. So we also then also like encouraging people to learn more. So we add some group activities, but we also make it an open Q&A. So we turned it into um, a virtual chat room, really, like a lounge. So there's a formal section and there's the free-for-all. We let everyone open their mics and people have built relationships over the last 12 months. But what's really great, I suppose most of you know, not everybody knows everything. And so the beauty is someone in the room is probably going to be able to help you with your question. So it's the questions that I find fascinating. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do today. So we do this usual news broadcast, and this is what it consists of. So I thought I'd give you a news bulletin, seeing as you've all come along, and we weren't sure how many questions we were going to get. So one of the things we do every fortnight is we update all the major service providers who've got online data. And we show stuff like these are the, the various items that Ancestry have recently released. And so, you know, and really good one that I liked the best was the 1939 England and Wales registers finally been updated. And because it was Irish, um, you know, St. Paddy's Day, there were lots of Irish records everywhere. But Family Search have added new collections. Find My Past have so many every single week. I just love it because there's always lots to talk about with Find My Past and lots more. And there's always their newspapers. We also talk that's about... A big, that's a big rabbit hole, those newspapers, let's face it. <laughs> yeah, I actually really like newspapers, but, you know, that's another talk fee. Um, but there's always the blogs from the companies with their news. So many of you will know that you haven't been always able to get the My Heritage access through your Auckland Library sub. And this was why it's fixed now and you can get it again. But they were having lots of technical difficulties due to a DNS attack. But they also put blog posts about interesting info. So sometimes we draw attention to that. Because I find the most challenging thing about, about family history today is there's so much happening, so much changing, so much news. So we kind of made this news collation service. So sometimes it's their new records. My Heritage don't add as much as the others. And then there's the freaky things, like they ended up with the largest downloadable app bigger than TikTok because of this feature of animating photos. So we even chatted about that and how, while we might find it creepy, there started to be experiences of people who hadn't seen their grandparents for a long time, they were elderly, and seeing these photos come alive was hugely moving. So it was interesting sharing all the different types of experiences about something most of us went, ooh, creepy. But even the smaller, um, data providers sometimes have gems and nuggets we can't live without. And of course, we always talk about DNA. Well, nearly always. You might be surprised. Sometimes I don't talk about DNA. But we follow some blogs that actually keep us up to date. So changes can happen because none of us can keep across everything. And so, um, and the best thing since sliced bread was the latest changes with Ancestry. V was one of the only people on the planet to blog about it. So lots of people ended up coming to Fiona's blog and following her tips and hints of this huge change. But what are some of the things that happened in the last 12 months? 
I mean, we're all reflecting on what our lives are like now, 12 months after the, the thing or the COVID or whatever word you want to call what we've been going through. I'm a bit sick of the words pivot and pandemic myself. Um, but it's interesting that every single major DNA testing company for family history has changed hands in the last 12 months. And we reported and talked about those during the last 12 months. I always like to find out education stuff, so does Fee, so there was interesting blog posts from the National Archives about how the census was done, also about Irish information, and the geek in me often will make sure there's some geeky stuff to share. And occasionally we even throw some bouquets back at the people. Uh, I'd written so many complaints to Ancestry about their website, I felt I should write a, send a bouquet when they made some recent changes. But there's the lovely people like Johnny Painter as well and keeping in touch with his updates. But we're not just DNA and global stuff. We keep in touch with all the news. So hopefully all of you have heard about the new New Zealand service that's free to view. Uh, it's an index-only service, but we talked about that. In fact, Fiona used it in one of her um, online examples that we worked through as a group the other day. And I blogged about it so people could get the most out of it because I'm aware that often people don't read the whole screen and they just start typing without understanding all the things they could do. So we both blog occasionally. The biggest news in the last 12 months really was Roots Tech. They were expecting over 300,000 people turn up. They got a million. Oh my God, a million. We were both really fortunate to be invited to speak and we did six videos. Sorry, Fee, it only let me show five on the screen. So one of yours is at the bottom of the list of the screen. But we'll put the link in the chat for you guys so you can go and watch the videos. But I also blogged about how to manage the videos because they had over 800 talks. We have about a year to follow them and watch them. So I've written tips about how you can put it into your own watch later list and folders and playlists so you can easily watch it. One of the other things we got up to was Fee taught us how to tell a story in less than seven minutes. And all the, all the members in our group who wanted to had a go at trying to condense the story into something visual on PowerPoint and, and give the talk to the rest of us. So we're helping people learn to speak, but also collate their ideas and just have some fun. And we had a lot of fun with that. It isn't always hard work. And what was really good is that actually rolled into this whole process as well, which is that some of those um, 20 slide stories turned into published books because they're really easy to take that PowerPoint that you've put together and then convert that into a photo book. Yeah, and they got, gave them away as presents and Father's Day and Mother's Day. So it was a running thing we did for much of last year. And the other thing that developed from Fee's work is that she ended up doing this plan to publish series of free leaflets that you can go through from one to 12. And you ran a workshop this year, didn't you too? We did. Um, I ran a workshop with the support of the Ted Gilbert Literary Trust and that's available free through my um, Memories and Time shop. So I'll put that link in there as well. But basically you can go to the Memories and Time shop and get both the guides and the workshop for free. And the reason I did that is because I started to do this to keep myself honest, because I needed to get some of that material out of my computer and into the hands of my family members. And so I wanted to make sure that I dragged as many genealogists along with me on this uh, road as possible, because I think it's really important that we do sort of pause for a wee bit and just share. 
And and don't you think the other thing is there's a bit of peer, peer pressure there? Like when you know you're working on something together, you kind of have a bit more of a drive away from that procrastination moment where you kind of go, oh, do I really want to do that? So yeah, we and at the moment, because the book I'm working on is a photo book and I'm scrapbooking it, I've been running some free scrapbook crops where people can come and just chat and um, talk while they do some scrapbooking together from around the world. And I'm actually getting my pages done. It's so important to just set that time aside and actually get something done. Mm. So that whole plan to publish things been our focus really and continues to be so. Uh, and at Christmas time, Fee showed us about this neat trick. So this is a photograph of, of, of a tree design she developed, but we also had them and I couldn't find the image. I'm sorry, Fee, at the, with what's been going on in my life. Um, but she also made a photo frame where this might have been one of your grandparents' names and their ancestors and the photograph of the grandparent with it. And you've got that somewhere, haven't you? I've got. In fact, if I talk, you'll possibly see I've got them up behind me on my um, screen. This is just one version that has my grandparents with their family trees. And they both sit up behind me. But I've also got it on one frame as well. And we, when we stop the slides, you can show that up and we'll spotlight you. Yeah. That'll make it easy. So lots of people got on board and did that and gave them away as Christmas presents. Um, so, so we did things prior to Christmas, and it's usually we talk about what we've already been doing. But at Christmas time, I like to talk about how what you can do over Christmas because lots of people spend most of their time at Christmas actually doing family history rather than all year. And I, my favourite thing is don't forget to scroll down anywhere that you've gone to that's new. Um, I think I wrote, scroll down is our theme, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, scroll, down. Scroll, scroll down. The other bit is read the whole screen. Yeah, and scroll down. <laughs> Find the help because people don't read the help either and often the answer's already there. But um, I've got a new one now and dig deeper. Deep is also good. Yeah, but um, so I wrote some DNA review scripts, which we don't need to talk about right now because you can watch the recording and follow those. And it changes because the site's changed anyway. But I think one of the things for me that's driven me a lot at Christmas time is that's when people tell their stories that you might not heard and how important it is to listen. But like the photographs that Fee did with the grandparents, that's a way of enthusing others to be interested in your research. So we did that. And we talked about other things at Christmas, like, wow, that's when Ancestry announced and FOMO passed that they're extending their library access. And for those of you that haven't heard, in the last week or so, it's now been announced to the end of June. So that means through your Auckland Library subscription, if you're outside of the Auckland Library area, check with your local library to see if they carry the library versions of these products because you'll be able to access them for free till the end of June and no doubt it may get changed again. But we do have fun and we had a big surprise party this year because I don't know if you guys knew, but Cindy's List turned 25 this year. It has to be one of the longest standing websites in the family history world. And one of our members, we decided to throw Cindy, because she's one of our um, members, a surprise party. And, and Judy Lofthouse, a member of ours in Queensland, designed a background so we could throw it as a surprise party. So one of our meetings was a surprise party for Cindy, who had no idea when she turned, we held her late. And when she entered the room, all of us had this thank you sign behind and we had heaps and heaps of fun. So now I'm handing over to you, Fee, because 
this is the, because we weren't sure we'd have enough questions part, Fee thought she'd give you the little sort of vignettes of what interested her recently. And um, so here you go, Fee. Excellent. Hey, so this is part of one of the talks that I gave during the year to um, the Talking Family History Group. And I just thought it was a really cool teaching thing. And funnily enough, I was using the same technique today with my client. And um, it's an interesting way to think about and find where your ancestors were living. So um, this case, I am looking at a street directory and it's for Greymouth. Now, the great thing about it is it lists everyone who lives in Preston Road and Greymouth, but it doesn't tell you what exact house number they're living at. And I was looking at the same thing for Hokitika today on another group um, with this client. And so I really want to know where does William Crawford actually live in Preston Road? Um, and if you look at the next slide, I think it's got the map. So for those that aren't familiar with Greymouth, here is Preston Road. And often in those directories, they'll tell you what streets they've come from. So in this case, it talked about Arnie Street. So I knew sort of roughly which direction they were going down the street. Now, Preston Road is pretty cool because on one side, there is a lagoon. So you know that they're likely to live on only one side of the street. So that's a good start, but exactly which house is a whole other thing. Um, so when you start looking at the directories, what I started to do was I actually put together a bit of a table and started writing out all the names of all the people in each year. So there's William Crawford in between the Curtis and the Jameson, 1930 and 1933 and 38. And you can see we're moving along in time. And a lot of the people are actually staying the same, as well as William Crawford actually moving out somewhere in the 38s. So I kept going, 40, 42, etc. Um, and as I say, you can see who lives there that's the same. Some people will change, some people will come and go, some people will come later in the time period, but there are people that have stayed in those houses from 1926 through to the 1940s, which means these are people that are doing things with your family. They're, they're the neighbours, they're the ones that you hang out with, just like you hang out with your neighbours now and talk to them. But the really great thing about the 1942 one is it actually put the house numbers on. So all of a sudden, I had house numbers to go against everyone, which meant I knew that 83 was likely the house that William Crawford lived in, which meant that I could go and look at it. I could take that old map and I could transpose it and sort of make it translucent over the top of the current Google map. Google Maps, as we know, is always a good place to go and have a look. And then I could play with that and have a look and go and down onto Street View and see if I could find the houses now, 83 seems to have disappeared. Um, there's an 81 and there's an 85, and they've got a great big gap between them, which was probably 83, I would imagine, that they've split between them. Now, C77 at the top, I know that house well because that was the house that I went and saw my nana in. I'm going to move my mouse because I can see that's a pretty hard number to see. Yeah, that, it is pretty hard. Um, 70 so 77 was where my nana lived, and she lived in the house that her parents had lived in as well. And 79 was where my auntie lived. Um, and those houses are like one pathway between them. There's no driveways, there's no garages or anything like that. So that's why I know that 83 would have been stuck right between those two houses, nice and tightly up against there. And so if you look at that next slide, Michelle, you'll see that 77 is William Hannum, the labourer um, in 1940. So having that knowledge of knowing that all those people stayed in the neighbourhood especially as you go forward in time, 
they may have photographic collections that have photos of all their friends in the neighborhood. I know I've got birthday photos when all my friends from the street came over. So I may have photos of people that don't have photos themselves. Does that make sense? So you may want to go and see who else was hanging out in the neighborhood. And it still makes me want to sing the neighbor's theme tune, but I'm not going to do that today, Michelle. No, we did that once. That was enough, wasn't it? That was enough. <laughs> Sometimes we are known to burst into song. We don't always just talk. So one of the questions we got today was from Judy, and it's how do I find elusive burial records for family members? She's got three ancestors from the same family, the mother, the father, and the son, who lived in Bradford, Yorkshire in the UK. They died in 1876, 81, and 82. I have found a burial place for another of their sons, but they are not in the same grave. Yeah. Um, my first thought on that is um, checking that you've got everything to go with those. So have you got the death certificates for starters? And the reason I ask that is because the death certificate will tell you the place they were living at the time they died. The, it's that geographic thing it's a bit like the neighbors what is the neighboring areas that had um burial grounds cemeteries available to actually bury people in so that would be my first sort of tip i know where the father i've got the death certificate for the father and i know where they lived i can find them on census records i just can't find a burial for them in the whole of yorkshire not so when I search for those three. But on the death certificate, does it actually say who was the informant and yes. the address the informant was? And was that still in Yorkshire? Because were they away and died somewhere else? No, it was in Yorkshire and it was his son who was present at the death. And so my other question is, do you know what their religious proclivity was? There used to be... Um, Wesleyan and then he was the father was the verger at All Saints in Horton Bradford uh, so when, when was he the verger was he the verger when he died um, I think he probably was retired then but he, it would have been around that time mm. I know he was in 1871 and so you've checked for the burial registers of that church to find out first of all does it even have its own churchyard no it, it doesn't there's only one grave there i would check for the newspapers yes because he <laughs> was uh, have you done that okay yeah i found his death in the bradford observer just just saying that he died right but no funeral notice as well no when you say you've found it in the newspaper have you actually read the newspaper and by reading it i mean not just using the search to get to that particular news item but actually reading the newspaper and just seeing if there is actually funeral notices it's just that sometimes the OCR process the optical character recognition process when they scan the newspapers doesn't digitize and doesn't transcribe very well um, especially in newspapers where it can be a little bit blurry and I've found that if you actually go and read the newspapers for those sort of three four days around the death sometimes you'll find that there's other notices that just haven't been picked up when you've searched for the name. And my additional suggestion is to check what the funeral directors are from a city and errors directory. And you might have to do the hard yards of con seeing where the archives might be for a funeral director. 
I would also look at the archives of the church and contact them and ask them if they know where the Virgin might have been buried because they, they will have some archival records about all the people who served in the church. So, and then I would also contact, I would, I'd look to, I'd go to Januki. Do you know the Januki site, Judy? Yes. So I would also go to Januki. I would drill down to the actual area you're interested in and I would look through to see if in that area there was a family history society or a local history society or a museum. And I would reach out to them as well with a very concise email with the facts you've gathered so they don't go telling you to go buy the certificate um, and just and the exact places you've looked. And so because they may well have access to manual indexes that have information you haven't been able to find online. And the other thing I would do is make sure that you build for yourself a um, surname spelling variant list because it can easily be that the index themselves has an error or an omission. And so the way you normally spell his name isn't the way they happen to be in the index. I mean, it's odd if it's three times, I get that, but you could have three different errors on the same family and it just, you've lucked out. The other problem I've had with indexes myself is that um, when people are indexing, often they've laid a ruler, and you know, historically, laid a ruler over a page and moved the ruler down and typed across. Sometimes the ruler moves. And so they've actually entered the the information from the person above or below in some of the fields. So even though they've indexed your person, they don't appear in an index um, when you do a search. So I've learned you have to kind of look in the weirdest places sometimes when you just can't find them in an index. Okay. So that's okay. And Judy had a second, uh, and Anne Brady has suggested um, if is any of the Yorkshire um county on deceased online so it's another place to to check out it's um so i'll go back and share the screen again fee and put up the second question so everyone can have a, a good read um how can we be sure we found the right ancestor when there are baptism records for more than one found with the same name approximate year of birth and in the same or a similar location Oh, they're painful around our ancestors. I do wish they'd actually give themselves unique names um, with middle names that they use consistently. Uh, so since they don't, um, the best thing that you actually have to do is you, you effectively have to trace them both. Um, so what you're going to do is you're going to collect up all the references of those people um, so that you can actually find out do any of them die as infants for starters? It's because if you've looked at the baptisms and you've looked at the burials, you may be able to match off some of them because sometimes when infants die, they'll say the son of or the daughter of X person, in which case you can sort of cross those people off as being potentials. The next one is then following them through into hopefully, if you're lucky, into a period of time when there's census records. Um, so what you're also getting there is that if they end up being in census records and you've got, say, both John Smiths in a census record, you may find that one of them will have a parent come and live with them or a sibling come and live with them. So you may be able to rule them out because of the fact you found them later on in life. Likewise, the parents, have the parents left wills or probate records or any other record that maybe named their children? 
So you, you actually have to go a little bit wider and look around the family. And that includes looking at the siblings as well, because um, siblings can leave probate records to their siblings, which may give you clues. They can leave um, money to um, children and nieces and nephews and sort of that wide range. And also look at the mother's families as well, not just the father's families, because the mother's families and her parents can also leave things to their grandchildren. So you, you have to eliminate by actually growing the family tree before you can cut it all off again. Um, and I can add to that. So Judy, I have a question. What time frame are you talking about in the case that your question's around? Um, the, his birth was 1803, four. So you're right on the edge of the use of autosomal DNA, but it can be useful. Um, so I had one of these problems. I had three Charles Days, all born in the same parish in Bethnal Green, all born, depending on um, his documents, he was kind of 1869, he might have been 1865, he might have been 1871. So I had this kind of narrow time frame for his birth. And I traced all of them through in the census and I couldn't identify which Charles Day family was my Alfred's family. And so it was one of my brick walls for many, many years. But I got a DNA match from somebody who'd actually was in America. It was actually my one of my very first DNA matches. And it turned out his grandmother's, no, his mother's grandmother was Emma Day, who had a brother, Alfred. And the only family group that had a brother, Alfred, was this particular group that I, you know, identified. Thank God there was only one Emma. Otherwise, I still would have been wondering what was going on. But it meant that between us, because he'd done some research much earlier than me and access records I'd not been able to access, we've, but then new records had come online, we've been able to push right back to um, the turn of the century. I've had similar breakthroughs with marriages from the 1700s, um, mostly marriages around 1780. So you're talking about children born around the time you're talking about. So if you haven't pursued autosomal DNA, and it has meant gathering many people's DNA, not just mine, but looking at where the DNA from that particular unknown person's gone to see what the rest of us have got. So you find your known second cousins on that branch, encourage them to test, and that's going to give you clusters of DNA you've all inherited from that common person who you can't work out which one's yours. And sometimes you need other tools. Sometimes you need to add Y chromosome research or mitochondrial research to help you identify the group. Um, it gets trickier the further back you go. And that's why most of it is actually the paper records that, that Fee's talked about. It's that broad searching that you often don't think about in that. I know the Americans call it the fan network, you know, friends, associates and neighbours. Um, I, I like to add siblings and cousins and you'd be surprised who leaves what to whom and that, that can be the strangest clue that takes you down the right track. So good luck, Judy. Excellent. And so I'll go back to the next question, which is from Christine, and that's about DNA. Oh, so sorry, just talked about DNA, and now you're all going to get it again. Um, so what's the realistic centre, Morgan's going to be that you're able to reconcile into your tree? And you just seem to be going around in circles. Do you want to speak first, Fee? Um, well, I would hope that the, at the 460 end that you're able to find those and put those into your tree because they're relatively close relations. 
However, you may have to do some work on them because sometimes those people won't have full trees if they've got a tree at all um, online that you can actually view. Um, they may also have their own mysteries in their families, um, which effectively become mysteries in your families too. So you may need some more work on those. Um, I do work down to 20 centimorgans. Sometimes I work a little bit lower. Um, it just depends on what I'm trying to work on. Yeah, my comment on that is really make sure you follow, unless you've got a highly endogamous family or you've got lines of pedigree collapse, the best thing you can do is actively cluster via the leads method your DNA results. Make sure you have your DNA at more than one site. Um, so I always recommend uploading to my heritage and family tree DNA to capture more matches because sometimes you need the matches from the whole group. Because I, like Fee, will work down lower. But if they, if I have a match that's 20 centimorgans and it doesn't share DNA with anybody, I don't bother working on it because it can be a false positive at that stage. It, it, and it, particularly um, in some communities where it's a single segment, it, it can be so deep, not a false positive, but just the ancestral source of that DNA is way off the end of my paper trail. And I'm never going to be able to work out who we inherited that small amount from. I just wanted to say that because I'm very new at doing this, I can't even link the 464 centimorgan one. Mm -hmm. So I just want to know, like, I've got it in ancestry, I've got it in my heritage, I've got it in gene net, I've got it in a whole lot. I'm just sort of working my way through because it's pretty new to me. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the biggest thing to remember, so my biggest tip is, this is not like any other genealogy record you've ever extracted evidence from in your whole life. So whereas when you first bought a death or marriage certificate and you were just starting out doing family history, you may never have seen a birth, death or marriage certificate before, but your life experience meant that when you read that certificate and it said that so-and-so who was called such and such, you knew what the information meant. You knew what a name was, a date was, a place was, you know, cause of death, if you didn't know, you could look up a dictionary. So you had what's called foundation knowledge so that when you looked at the document, you could extract valuable information from it. DNA is so new to the family history field. It's so new to scientists as well, relatively speaking. We only got a full identity of the human genome this century, even though the structure of DNA was identified 50 years earlier. It took us a long time to identify all the chemical um types and locations for humans that made us human and then to apply it to family history and then to make it widely available. So it was only widely available to family historians from 2015. There were certainly early adopters before that, but globally we started to get a big enough database and range of distribution in 2015. So we're talking six years of people's knowledge who are the companies providing the service to us. And for all of us, only about six years if you started early enough to build foundation knowledge to understand how to extract the evidence. Most people in my audiences, and I've been talking DNA now for nearly five years, say it takes a couple of years for the pennies to start to drop. And most people, including both of us sitting in this room and every scientist who happens to be a family historian who I've talked to, except for the one who actually worked in the labs developing it, most of us get overwhelmed and find we need to take a step back or make learning time available and not to learn too many things at the same time. 
So my advice to most people is start with the one website where you've tested at. Usually that's going to be Ancestry because it's got the, the largest database. Make sure you're really comfortable with using the tools on that site and you learn how to understand what that DNA evidence is you're working with and give yourself lots of time to do that because your brain builds foundation knowledge unconsciously and you need to make sure you're not overloading it so it has time to build that knowledge. And then you'll find it's easier to go into other areas. Um, I've been doing a four-week class in Devon and for this very reason, that whole foundation stuff. And that's why I've done all this initial foundation stuff. I'm actually, Fee and I are working out how we're going to keep doing more foundation DNA because there's lots of people out there like you, Christine, that need that time to learn how to use the current tools which keep changing so fast. But my best thing is go to the Leeds Method tutorial and Fee wrote a really good blog post and had some actual freebie documents you can print out and use to learn to cluster your DNA and work with it so that you're not trying to do everything at once and try to identify the known clusters. So like you won't start with that 460, it's too large an amount to do clustering. So, so Leeds is looking at trying to identify your four grandparents' ancestral lines and essentially end up with four colors. Some of us are only going to find little groups out here and little groups out here. And so some of us might end up with five, six, seven clusters because there's not enough people related to our great grandparents off these lines to make easy clusters. If you're working in the UK, they have a lot less people testing than us, relatively speaking. But most of us here, if you've got around three to 400 people matching you, that means you haven't got any endogamy. And then you've got a good range of people. You're going to be able to cluster into those four groups. And then you work on the group you know. And, and build out those trees. And there's a whole process to go on. So we have another question that's come in. What about an early child listed as being buried in a grave on council website and in the council cemetery records, but there's no birth record for them? This is in New Zealand. The family were Roman Catholic. The local church suggested they have met, may have put up a gravestone as a memorial for a child born in late pregnancy, which was not registered as a stillbirth. Has anyone else heard about this happening or have any ideas why? And that's from Susie Best. Susie, you're on Zoom. Are you able to unmute yourself, Susie? Because I just have a quick question to ask you, in particular about what, when you say early, what time period that is. 1860s question mark. So it's very sort of nobody really seems to know, but there is a record of this child at that gravesite. Um, so my first thing on that would be that at that stage in the early 1860s, it's not compulsory to register a birth, uh, but often for some reason, sometimes you'll actually find the death and you won't find the birth. Um, in your case, you've found the grave with neither the birth or the death. So obviously the council has actually been better at their records than potentially the registrar general at this stage, making sure that they had got both. Um, so the family obviously wanted to have this child buried in a cemetery. It would be interesting to know if the grave was then later used for other family members. It was. Um, it's got the remains of two people that we presumed were childless because there's been no birth registered for them. It's family of two brothers that we know of that a birth hasn't been registered. It just seemed odd, but yeah, I... I see your point that may well have been because I've 
kept coming back to that too and even going down to view the grave last week to see that, yes, the mother, presumed mother and father are both in there um, mm -hmm. with a child, but there was nothing to actually give evidence that they had ever had children other than this child being in this grave. I would also... Simon Street Cemetery. Yeah, I was about to read out the couple of comments. So Shona says it's happened at Simon Street Cemetery and Anne Brady said the child may have been baptised even in utero. And that was one thing I was going to ask about as well as whether or not you've checked to see whether there's a baptismal record for the child, especially if they were Roman Catholic. Yeah. Um, just, just interjecting here, mm -hmm. um, I did the Simon Street Cemetery walk with David Veron at the weekend um, and uh, he was telling us about um, a child that had been born um, uh, stillbirth still um, quite late in pregnancy, but stillbirth. Um, and it was buried in Simon Street Cemetery, and um, the the child was listed um, on on the stone, but it was a memorial rather than um, the the child wasn't actually there. It was just a memorial, and the parents were um, buried, and that's when the memorial was put in for the child. Yeah, and and in that period of time, it's really hard. I would have. I'd have a look in the newspapers and actually read the local newspapers, um, but a good chance that there's no mention of a death or a funeral or anything like that because it costs money to put things in the newspapers, so they may well not have had the money to even be able to do that. I would look to see if anyone has a family Bible because maybe the family Bible might mention something in it. Yeah, as well. yeah that's what I was going to say exactly, a family Bible. Yeah. And and, and you could be fortunate enough even to find letters going home. So if you know where the family came from and you know anybody that's descended from their siblings or parents that stayed at home, you may well find there's letters going back telling people about what happened. It's finding the sentimental key caretakers mm -hmm. who, who were those people that things were handed down to. Um, sometimes it is, like I say, in the strangest places. Other times it's staring you in the face. It interests me that it's a question mark about the year. So, you know, why isn't it a proper date? Is it so it is that makes me wonder if it's just a memorial that the family knew that there was a child and they didn't want to not acknowledge that child's existence, even though there may be no registered. It's that question mark that makes me more curious about, yeah, what really went on. Because yeah, it's, it's taken me 20 years to find the name of a child. I knew there was a child. I knew there was another daughter because they're on a, an age on a death certificate. But I couldn't find the name of this child. I couldn't work out who this person was, and it took me 20 years to find it. Um, so, yeah, you just have to keep going sometimes. Hey, um, one thing, Michelle, that someone else asked me, um, I just got a message in the chat, was to talk about my purple folder. Fine. <laughs> So this is my purple folder. You see, it's a very exciting purple folder, but it actually comes out of a challenge I started at the start of the year called the five-day ancestry chart challenge. And it's something I like to do at least once a year, if not every two years, where I print out my ancestry chart out of my family tree program. So this is my ancestry chart. Um, there's a few pages because I've been doing this for a very long time. And so I've got lots of pages. But in the chart challenge, uh, so yeah, so basically I have a five-day challenge which you go through and you review your ancestry chart. So this is just your direct ancestry. It's not 
the sidelines. It's not the things you've got distracted on. It's just your direct ancestry. And we do things like you'll notice, if I take this right up, some people have got blue lines under them. And the blue lines are because they came from Scotland. Some people have got green highlighting because that means I've actually got those certificates. Some people have got um, little hand-drawn boats on them because they were the immigrants. Some people have got DNA stamps on them because they have DNA matches. Um, but that challenge is on my website if you want to go and take part in it. Um, it's, I'll put the link in the, the chat as well for you all. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. Um, and it's just a good way of reviewing what you might have been missing, I guess is the, the best idea. Um, it's a way of going back and going, hey, what do I need to focus on for this year? Um, and I'm very big on setting goals because as soon as you set a goal for what you want to achieve, you can actually achieve it if you've written it down um, because it's that universe providing part. Yeah. Hey, I'm um, realizing that we are about to stop. Um, Michelle and I, as you can see, are quite happy to talk, hence talking family history. Uh, we'll we should, all things going well, we'll both be up in Auckland for the Auckland Family History Expo in August. Um, and hanging out with Shona and her team at the Fickling Centre. Stay tuned for more tracks in this Heritage Talk series, or visit the Auckland Library's website for other podcast tracks. Kia manawa ho. Enjoy.